Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey, how you doing, guys? Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Oh, hold on a second. I'm, I get, I'm thirsty. I got to get a drink of water here. I mean, coffee. Mm. You see my video? If, if you're listening to the audio, I'm sorry you're missing out. I got a coffee mug here that I did not buy for myself. A student bought for me. It says best coach ever. And as I sip my delicious coffee, at the bottom of the cup, you're going to see a number one. Mm. Ah. Best mug ever. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Welcome to the show. We got a good guest on today. His name is Daniel Kleiman. Known this guy for a long time. He's been in my masterminds. One of the smartest guys I know in the business. And um, we're going to talk about how he generates cash flow from the ground up. He's doing some really cool things. Been in the business a long time. And he has an amazing software. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. So stay tuned for that. Also, I want to let you know this podcast is brought to you by my book right here, simplelandflips.com. This is a book I wrote about how to make 10K in 10 hours. Now, does that sound spammy or what? 10K in 10 hours. Well, okay, maybe it does a little bit, but the point of it is how to flip vacant land and make 10 grand a month working just 10 hours a week. It can be done. We're doing it. So if you want to learn how to do it as well, go to simplelandclass.com. You see the URL right there, simplelandclass.com and check it out. After you sign up for this little class that I have at that website, I will give you this book for free, PDF of the book. You get it for free. And listen, even if you decide you don't want to get my class, you will learn a lot from just the webinar on how to do deals. In the webinar, I show you, and in the book, I show you how I find my leads, how I, what I send to them, how I make my offers, how I sell the deals. I love vacant land right now because it's just so much easier. And a mutual friend of ours that we'll talk about here in a little bit, um, his, I got, we have two mutual friends that are doing vacant land deals right now. And they are three mutual friends. Oh, wait till Daniel hears about this. I just think of these three different guys we know that are doing land based on what I've taught them um, using the strategies in this book. So go get it at simplelandclass.com. Should we bring Daniel on? Let's do that. Daniel Kleiman, how are you? What's up, man? Did I pronounce your last name right? Kleiman or Kleiman? Kleiman. It's always weird when you say you've known somebody for a super long time and then you mispronounce their last name. That's okay, Joe. You know, this might be a good time, and this is awkward, but I actually have a please me out how to make $11,000 in nine hours. And um, yeah, Yeah, I knew Daniel would give me a hard time about this title. If anybody that I know would give me a hard time, it would be him. It's just a weird coincidence, but my, I mean, my book also talks about land, but otherwise it's totally different. So... <laughs> oh, so our mutual friends, Rob Swanson. Okay. His uh, son and daughter are flipping vacant land. They just did like 25 grand on one of them, just a flip. They didn't do anything to it. In, uh, they're in Denver, right? They did this one in Tennessee. They're doing some more in Arizona. Um, Cameron Dunlap and his daughter are doing some land deals. And nice. do you know Caleb, Caleb Pearson in Charleston by any chance? No. Okay. I thought he was a mutual friend. See, I really know you so well. I know who. Uh, our mutual friends are. I was just shocked you got Cam to work. Well, he's not. <laughs> or, or Swanson for that matter. <laughs> Very well, no, they're, they're not working. They're, having, they're making their children work. It all makes sense now. <laughs> it does make sense. Right. Yeah. My kids are a little young for that, but I can't wait until I can make them do all the work. That's why we, we had three of them so that, you know. How many kids do you have? Three. Three. How old are they? Five, four, and one. So can't quite put them to work yet, but we'll get there. I love your uh, pictures of you, you and your family on Facebook. You're always smiling on, <laughs> on every picture that you post. Yeah, so, you're so happy. Genetics are an incredible thing. Um, by the way, I'm hearing feedback. Oh, let me. Sh- I'm moving sure my volume down a little bit. Is that listen, the listeners are not hearing feedback. Yeah, the, the genetics are. An incredible thing. Like you, you definitely know when, when the kids, kids are yours because they literally just have, did they do the same stupid things that you do? Yeah. My kids don't smile for pictures. It's hilarious. Like <laughs> w- we all just look like an 1890s photograph, um, of like a Russian family, uh, that, you know, it, anyway, it's, it's funny. Speaking of Russia, talk about how you came here to the States or your family. What was it? 
we came in 1992. So we immigrated. Oh, we're, we're Russian Jewish refugees. We immigrated here. I was 12 years old and uh, came here legally, but it took a, a long time to get ability to leave Soviet Union, but we left just as the wall fell. Mm. It was 92. It was crazy hyperinflation in Russia. It just stopped being Soviet Union like six months before. And it was, it was, uh, I mean, I, I was old enough to kind of remember most of it. I was 11 and a half at the time, and it was definitely an, an interesting experience. But yeah, my, my parents packed it all up, came here. They were in their 30s and 40s and started over completely like like all immigrants do and uh, they're very successful in their own right right now yes, my mom yeah. became she was a doctor she had a phd in russia in internal medicine she came here she started all over she went through no with exams in yeah i mean she she learned i couldn't become a doctor once there's just no way she became a doctor twice she wow. uh in language that she didn't really speak very well at the time went through board exams went through residency again and became an MD again wow. for the second time in, in a foreign language, which, you know, it's not like she's, she's not the only one that's done that. There's lots of other immigrant doctors and even in her hospital. But to me, it's always been hugely inspirational because, I mean, just imagine starting all over again in your yeah. mid to late thirties and starting over something as complicated as becoming a, an MD. So she yeah. just retired a month ago, yeah. finally. And you know, now, now my, she's just, my dad's retired. So now they're just tra traveling the world and babysitting my children. So we were kind of like, you should hurry up and retire, get a lot more free time, not being selfish, but come and, come and watch these kids. And I'm sure you make your mom and dad really proud, you know, occasionally, okay. occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Sometimes. All right. So how was your English when you came here? Then? I, I had, I had kind of a foundational knowledge of it. We, we studied it in Russia. And, and so did my parents. It was easy for me to learn because I think 14 is kind of that age where if you, if you're under 14, you really absorb a language very quickly. And I feel like that's kind of like the age. If you, if you, if you try to learn a new language at 15 or older, it's harder. You can still do it, obviously. But, um, so I picked it up really quick once, once I moved here. Okay. Um, you know, there's still some words that confuse me, Joe. So don't, don't throw out any big English words. Yeah, yeah, in our call today. All right. So, um, how'd you get into real estate, Daniel? I had a corporate job. I I always kind of had an interest in real estate, but didn't really know how to get into it. Yeah, I studied. I took like a real estate class in college, um, but it was so theoretical and abstract at that point. I mean, we I had an amazing professor in college, and he was an experienced investor. But we went into like immediately learning about doing big gas station deals, like buying out chains of gas stations and 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 building hotels and. To, to a 19-year-old kid, it was just unachievable. So I moved to New York. I worked in finance. I, I worked at Wall Street for about six years until the crash in 2008. And during that time, I, I started reading books about real estate and I started picking up a couple of rental properties back in my hometown with a buddy of mine because I, 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 I realized very quickly that I, I wanted to build assets. I was, I was somebody that that worked in finance and got paid very well. And I was leaving nothing, meaning I wasn't saving. I wasn't building. I had no backstop. I, I, you know, I was one of those people that was making six figures and living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. And so I realized very early on that even if I kept working a corporate job, I wanted to build an asset base. And then in 2008, they let me go, which, you know, in hindsight is wonderful. Yeah. Now, otherwise I probably would have stayed there for a while longer because the money was good and they kept giving you more money every year and that's how they trap you. You know, it's, it's the golden handcuffs. Sure. So luckily in, in 08, I got let go. I moved back to my hometown um, and then I just got into real estate full-time at that time. Who were some of the guys you were learning from back then? Man, when I, Fortune Builders was one of them. Yeah. I, I They had this $97 a month program. I think it was focused on wholesaling. Was it wholesaling you? Yes. Like university? Yes. Yes. I remember that. that was yeah, so, I, so I subscribed to that for a few months. And then I, I, you know, I just absorbed a lot of knowledge at that time just by, by blogs and forums and, and scanning forums and, and just a couple of random courses. Were you part of um, Flipping Homes at the time? Remember flippinghomes.com? No, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I got into it basically right. I'm 
full time. I got into it late 08. And honestly, most of my learning at that point came from, from doing because I ended up buying with a buddy of mine a couple of vacant shells that we end up, I mean, gutting down to the studs and, and redoing and, and renovating. Um, okay. and, and I was the guy swinging the hammer for like six months. And I learned a ton about sort of the nuts and bolts of real estate and especially rehabbing right then and there. And then a lot of my deal sourcing knowledge came from just little bits and pieces online. Yeah. Just learning from different people and learning from, from different educators. And you were learning by doing, which is the best educator, isn't it? By far. I mean, but by far, and, and, and I've always told people that I think, I think real estate education and courses has I- I- immense value, but only if applied. I mean, we, you and I are both, we both have education businesses and I have a ton of people that, you know, we educate that I see year after year after year. And no matter how great of education we're giving them, those lifelong learners that are still waiting to kind of pull the trigger and do a deal and, and that always kills me because they'll learn far more by making, doing a bad deal and making a lot of mistakes than they will by, by, by taking yeah. 20 more courses. Yeah. So, so yeah, I got in the, in the trenches pretty quickly. I swung the hammer on, on these two houses for literally six months, night and day, doing almost everything myself with my buddy. And, and, and I learned two important things. I learned one, how to rehab and how to estimate repairs and what things cost and the order of, and the sequence of events that should happen if you, if you go into a, a house that needs a full renovation, I, I, I learned that very quickly. And the second thing I learned is never to do it again. Meaning I learned very quickly that six months swinging the hammer and doing nothing else, not lifting my head up was not a good use of my time. I should have been out there hunting deals and doing deals. So it was great because you can't manage things until, until you know how they're done. And so that experience, those six months taught me a lot about then gave, it gave me a better ability to manage contractors because it was harder to, to bullshit me because yeah. I did a lot of those things myself, uh, you know, yeah. uh, and I had a basic understanding that otherwise I wouldn't have had. But I also realized very quickly that I'm never picking up a hammer again because that's yeah. not, that's not my superpower or, or, or where my, my time should be spent. So were you, were you married at this time? No. Okay. So you, your, your living expenses were very low and you probably living with your parents. Well, you were living with your parents. Okay. I moved, I moved back home. I went from making 200 grand a year on wall street and living in like a $3,000 a month apartment on Upper East Side Manhattan to getting rid of all my expenses. And, and I was very fortunate to be able to do it because I, did, I didn't have responsibilities. I didn't have a family and I swallowed my pride and I moved back home and I lived with mom and dad for a year and a half. Wow. And but that took pressure off me, right? It, it, it was, you, you know, it was, you had to, I had to stop giving a shit, right? Like my, my, my friends were still had jobs and, you know, their own houses and they traveled and I literally moved in with my parents. I did nothing but, but work for almost two years without taking time off. But being able to cut my living expenses down to nothing gave me freedom to make the right decisions. Yeah. Right. I, I didn't have to be engaged in, in very short-term minded thinking where I was worried about how to pay my rent next month. And I was very fortunate to have that opportunity. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I was like a 28 year old bum, lived with my mom. She did my laundry. I cooked no. every night. It's wonderful. I, I go back to that now. I don't care. My 40 plus year old grown man, I would go live with my parents again. It's great. Well, would you, that's interesting because I've thought about that. My boys are 19 and 17 right now and both living still at home. One's going to school full-time and working full-time. The other one's working full-time who's still 17. So mm-hmm. trying to figure that out, you know, they want to do real estate and my oldest wants to go to chiropractor school. And I often wondered like, how long do I let them stay at home? And if they were to go out, would I let them back? Uh, I don't know. I guess it's different for every family, every kid. Isn't well, I, I, I think it depends on what they're doing, right? If, if they're doing something productive and you're creating a room for them to, to learn and build something. That's one thing. If they're like just smoking weed on your couch for two years, that'll not happen. Well, not happen for two seconds. Not not the same, right? So I I think I think if you have ability to to I don't yeah I mean I get it. If you have ability to give them room to 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 do something productive, it's not a yeah. bad thing. All right. So during this time when you were living off your you were living off of your parents for two years, a year and a half, you were. Uh, 
rehabbing is that what you're doing is that when you were you were, you were actually yeah um, yeah and then and they and they got on, i got into wholesaling they did i did some wholesaling but i didn't do much of it because i i my my interest from day one was assets interesting so, so the so the houses that we rehabbed we then rented them out refinanced them with with a local bank re- so how did you get cash. money while you're doing this took out took out a little money on the refi Okay, you know, at, at at that time, I mean, that was a great time to do burr sure. because you could buy properties way below replacement cost. But the appraisals, when when you renovated them, were still good enough to where you could pull out your cash and even pull out some money on the refi and still have very healthy cash flow on that deal. Just so everybody knows, the burr strategy you're talking about is B R R R R: buy, renovate, rent, refinance. Is that right? And then repeat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, so so I built probably the first uh, seven or eight million dollars in my portfolio just through Burr and okay. doing single family houses and duplexes. But also, again, I made some money wholesaling at that time. But being able to have that that pressure taken off me to pay bills and and having that time to build a baseline portfolio. And then, and then eventually that portfolio was cash flowing a couple of grand a month. And that was enough for me to live off, at least, yeah. you know, not extravagantly. So, you know, my 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 goal when I left Wall Street was to build a rental portfolio that gave me five grand a month. That was like, man, if I can just re, you know, replace my replace my living, pay for my living expenses and get yeah. to like five grand a month cash flow. Like that was like the holy like that's how small I was thinking at the time, right? Yeah, but I got there within two and a half years. Yeah, to where all my, you know, I I I could afford my own rent. I could afford, I could afford to go out. I could afford to, to do some travel. But that's that's how about how you. That's how small I was thinking in the beginning, right? That was like the yeah. holy grail. If I can just get to five grand a month, that was the dream. Can Can I ask you some questions about how you calculate cash flow? Right. Sure. Everybody has yeah. a different way to do it. And some people they think they have five grand a month in cash flow, but after vacancies future capital expenditures mm-hmm. or things you have to re- fix and replace that quickly disappears. So how do you calculate cash? That, 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 that's a great question. I'm glad you're asking me that. Rent, we take immediately off of rent an 8% management fee, right? So, so right now I have an in-house property management company. It's a separate company, but it's in-house. It's, but it's my company and it only manages my assets. So we take off an 8% management fee we take 10% of gross rents and put them into reserves for maintenance and capital improvements minus all of our operating expenses, real estate taxes, insurance, landscaping, legal, marketing, minus minus the mortgage. So even if I have a brand new property right now, something I built from the ground up, day one, I'm putting 10% of rents, they're, they're going into reserves. I'm putting them away because I, w- I will use them up one day. Yeah. And 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 that and that's my net cash flow, and that and that figure is reliable because I I never I, I yeah the first couple of properties that we bought right I bought I bought some duplexes back when I still had a full time job I bought them back in two thousand six from from those first few purchases I learned that lesson because we bought things we just wanted to get in the game man so we bought we bought things off of MLS at the top of the market paid top dollar and and these properties came with. They were old. They were 100 plus years old. And they had a lot of deferred maintenance. They learned that lesson very quickly because I was doing what you're saying. On paper, these things were cash flowing fabulously. I did not, for 10 years of managing those properties until I sold them in 2016, I did not pocket a dollar yeah. off of them. Literally everything that we cash flowed went back into replacing heat pumps, patching the roof, yeah. just playing whack-a-mole with repairs. And so... I learned that lesson very quickly on those first few properties that, you know, the the cash flow on paper is not what you're going to end up putting in your pocket. I want to ask you, like, I want to stay on this, the, the reserves, because I got in big trouble um, in 08 and 09 with the mm-hmm. rental properties that I had because I thought I was cash flowing 200 a month, and uh, but I really wasn't. And I got in big trouble now where I had vacancies and no money to pay for the mortgages and all of that. Mm-hmm. So how many doors do you have now, approximately? Including what I'm physically building right now, just under 170, 180, something like that. All right. 
So you're getting, are you still taking 10% of your gross rents and putting them in a separate account today? Yeah. Or on the books, at least on the books. Yeah. And, And the way it ends up working is newer properties end up subsidizing older properties at times, right? Because I manage it like a portfolio. But yeah, every single month, we take 10% off the top from each property and put it away into reserves. So for the last 12 12 years, let me put it this way, I've never had to make a capital contribution back into the portfolio to fix something or to make up a shortfall in paying my mortgage. That's always been the goal, right? Like when I take an owner draw, which is the same as cash flow, I take an owner draw every month. That's what I pocket every month. I've never had to make an owner contribution back to those properties. Okay. We've always had the funds, you know, and, and things happen. Like I need to replace a roof. Heat pump goes bad. We, you know, we built a bunch of duplexes with just concrete slabs and we stained those slabs. And after three, four years, it just looks like crap. So now on a bunch of those, as we turn them, I'm spending four or five grand at a time to put LVT floors on top of them. And I'm just writing big checks. And that's okay. We've set money aside for all of that stuff. Yeah. That's so that's so how I engage like the success of whether this is working or not. Yeah. Is whether I ever have to make a contribution back to those properties from my personal checkbook. Yeah. And that, that's that's yet to happen. Um, now you have your own in-house property management company. What led you to that point? Did you hire outside property management companies and get frustrated with them or no? I, I've always had a distrust of third party management companies. And that's not to say that there are not good ones out there. There are. There are good ones. I would say that there are more bad ones out there than good ones. But even a good one, even if I went to the best third-party property management in town, management company, the best one, cream of the crop, they would never care as much about my assets as I do or the people that work for me. Because the people that work for me, their only job is to manage my assets. Yeah. They sit in my office. I talk to them daily. I I perform sort of the asset management function, right? The asset management manages the property managers, but there's there's no comparison, right? Yeah. Like I can you know I I can go to my senior guy who who works for me, who's in, who runs the property management company, and he's phenomenal. And I can say I can name a unit, and off the top of his head, he he can tell me how much it rents for, how many square feet it is, right? when the lease expires. I mean, when, and so we've put in place incredibly tight procedures around management yeah. that we created and we don't have vacancies. We haven't had a vacancy in 10 plus years. We have incredibly stringent screening procedures in place and we haven't had to evict somebody in over 10 years. Wow. As a matter of fact, we don't have delinquent rents. There might be out of whatever number of units we manage, there might be in any given month, maybe one person doesn't pay by like the seventh or the eighth one, and they usually catch up by middle of the month. Okay. So I don't have delinquency, I don't have vacancy. And that's largely attributed to the quality of our management, the quality of our leasing, right? Because it all starts with leasing, tenant screening. It, well, let me take it back. It starts with the product. If you have shitty product, you can attract shitty tenants. That's sure. why there's so many land horror landlord stories because if you have a low quality product and it's cheap, you're going to attract that, that clientele. Yeah. 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 And they're, you know, we, so we have really good product. It attracts really good tenants. We have really tight screening procedures in place. And, and I've always told my property management employees, like how well you screen and who you put into that property determines how the rest of the year will go. It, it dictates everything. So, you know, I, trust that model. I don't trust passing that off to somebody else. What would you say to somebody who is just getting started and they've got, you know, three or four little small rental properties, they're growing and expanding, they're buying a couple properties a year or whatever. Uh, when do you tell them, hey, you need to start managing your own properties, maybe hire a part-time assistant, maybe hire a virtual assistant, somebody to manage your properties for you and not use a management company? You know, I would say, first of all, you should definitely manage them yourself for a year or two and learn, learn tenant screening, learn leasing, learn tenant screening, learn how to handle turnover yourself, right? Learn how to handle and deal with maintenance issues. That doesn't mean you need to be fixing things yourself, but you should be taking in maintenance calls and 
directing the, the right contractors to it. Because if you do that, your ability to then manage somebody else and oversee their work when they manage your properties is going to be that much more competent. Yeah. Right. Again, it's very hard to manage. I, you know, I don't know the first thing about being a doctor. So all of a sudden, if I took a, took, took over a medical clinic and I was managing a bunch of doctors, I'd have absolutely no idea how to evaluate their work. If I bought a car mechanic shop right now, I'd have, having never been a car mechanic myself, I would have absolutely no idea if my car mechanics are doing a good job or not, right? This is no difference. So if you have a couple of rentals, you should manage them yourself for at least a while and learn the nuts and bolts of it. And then you should scale quickly to the point where you can hire a full-time employee. And how do you figure out when to hire a full-time employee? Well, let's say you need to pay them $60,000 a year, right? What kind of rent roll every year do you need in order to take 8% or 10% of that rent roll? And that would give you $60,000 a year. And for most people, that's somewhere between 30 and 40 units. 30 and 40 units, you can afford a full-time person that works for you, whose only job is to manage your assets. I hired my first property manager when I was at like 20 units and I couldn't afford them yet. So I took cash and put it into the management company in order to be able to pay that person's salary. But then they freed me up from so much crap that I was able to scale up quicker to the point where the rent roll now could support that full-time yeah. person. That's good. So, you know. Every, every successful landlord I've ever met always manages their own properties. They have their own t assistant or their own team that manages their own properties. And there's a lot of frustrated landlords out there. You know, it, the... The $200 a month cash flow that, that you were talking about that you thought you were making, but you weren't. That's the difference between good man. And I'm not saying that you were a bad manager, right? But like yeah. the margins, the, the margins in, in, in landlording are actually fairly thin, right? Yeah. On our units, net clean, we, we make between three, let's say in $500 a unit, but that can be wiped out with bad management or negligence or a month or two of vacancy. Yeah. So. So subpar management literally takes you from having a profitable, awesome portfolio to bleeding. And it's a very thin line. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. So, I mean, so we, we watch our numbers carefully. That doesn't mean we don't fix things that need to be fixed and don't spend money, but we, we watch, we watch everything very carefully because that makes all the difference between having a profitable portfolio and not. That's very interesting what you're saying there, because good management can make or make you profitable or make you unprofitable. And uh, yeah. so that kind of leads to my other question I wanted to ask you about in terms of debt. Obviously, you can't get to 170 doors as quickly as you have and the kind of numbers you have without using bank financing, leverage. But look, do you, are you of the philosophy of the camp, you know, refi till you die? Just take all your equity out, keep on refi, refi. Or are you trying to pay off your debt? Do you have a goal to pay off all your properties in, you know, 20 years or something like that? I think what you do with financing and with leverage depends on your goals and the stage of life that you're in, I would say. You know, if, if you are trying to grow aggressively, then one of the ways to grow aggressively and scale is by using your balance sheet really intelligently. Your balance sheet can be a great tool, right? So by, by refinancing at opportune times, you can take equity out and use that equity a lot more efficiently in new properties than how efficiently it's working for you stuck in that property that you refinance. So, you know, do I believe in refi till you die? No, but I do believe in, in, in smart use of your balance sheet because I know guys that build larger portfolios than me just by, by playing the balance sheet game for the past 10 years. You know, appreciation, rent growth, pull cash out, use that cash, buy more, more deals. So, at the same time, I believe in, in, in balance sheet management from the perspective of not over leveraging, because every time I go to a bank to get more money, they look at my global balance sheet and they look at my global loan to value. They look at my global cash flow. They look at my global debt coverage. So if my global debt coverage is, you know, barely there already, if my current loan to value is 80%, that bank is going to look at me differently than if I show them, hey, I have a conservative portfolio. My portfolio is leveraged at 50%, 55% of, of today's value. So it's a balancing act, right? You, yeah. If you want to grow, you need to use your balance sheet 
intelligently because your return on equity here may only be 3%. But if you pull that equity out and deploy that equity in a new deal, now that same cash is earning 10, 12, 15%. But you don't want to take it too far and lever yourself to the point where you can't get new finance. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's very good. Very good, good answer. Now, what's your philosophy in terms of, are you going after class A, class B, class C type of properties? Uh, are you in the middle of the road? Because I'm thinking recession, you know, what, is the economy going to get worse? I know you're a huge Joe Biden fan. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> but okay, so if, if he runs the economy to the ground and everything falls apart, then, you know, are you going to be okay with the properties that you have right now because of where you're at? That makes sense? So I, I, yeah, I only develop class A product. Okay. Um, these days, in order to develop, in order to pay and justify the costs of construction, you basically have to develop class A product because you need class A rents. If, if I were to wake up tomorrow and say, I want to develop class B minus product and build something that's more affordable in my area, I can't without getting low income housing tax credits or some kind of major other major subsidy. Interesting. For me to justify what things cost to build right now. And because the cost of construction is so high. Cost of construction is so high. I, I have to target class A rents, basically. But even if I didn't, I'd still target class A product because again, it goes back to, we, we build really nice things and they attract really competent people that make good money, have no trouble paying their rent, take great care of our properties, stay for a long time, don't cause us problems, don't don't destroy things, don't cause drama. You know, I, I, I had the Section 8 house back in 2009 and there was a SWAT team raid there. I got pulled out of a movie theater by, by, by the police because they were like, you, you need to, you need, you, are you, they called me, they were like, are you the owner? You need to come here. There's a SWAT team raid because it was like a drug house. They recovered guns, every drug under, like, I'm over that. Yeah. I don't have those problems anymore. We so really- if, the, if the economy continues to soften and it gets worse, are you concerned that because you are at the higher end, you're class A, your rents are higher, that are you going to have a harder time surviving than somebody who's class B or class C? I think what we are paying attention to is, again, cash flow and margins. Do, do I have room to to cut my rents a bit if I need to. Well, that, well, I'm I'm not really concerned about a recession. I do not, I personally, and I'm no economist, I actually spend very little time thinking about this stuff. But I'm personally not concerned about a deep recession, a lot of layoffs, our tenants losing their jobs. I am paying more attention to is the construction pipeline, the multifamily construction pipeline, because nationally in Q2 of 2022, I believe it was Q2, there was more multifamily construction units started than in any period since like 1940s, I believe, right? And and locally here now, there is a tremendous multifamily construction pipeline that's going to add a lot of supply to the market. And guess what? It's all class A. So that concerns me more than any kind of doom and gloom and impending recession. So do you think it could be overbuilt? You think there could be too many uh, new apartment buildings being built. It's it it's it's very possible. So you know, then then you look and you say, am I at like tippy top rents or am I competitive? Do I have room to bring my rents down? Do I have a product that's unique that will continue to compete against? You know, what I built is more of like boutique style buildings. So between two and let's say fifty units, right? I've got some hundred plus, two hundred plus projects I'm I'm developing like slowly. But most of what I built are more kind of boutique properties where my 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 apartments are 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 bigger than the big box apartment buildings that are being built. They're they're in really good locations. Well we, let's talk we have, about that. We have, a unique, we have a unique product. A lot of what I built are duplexes. Okay. And and then my in my duplexes, these these apartments are much larger. Uh, they will they will compete against the massive multifamily product that's coming in the market, they will compete all day long with that product because I have 30% more space in these apartments. They don't have to park in the parking garage. They can literally walk out of their door. There's parking right there. There's a yard. We give them huge balconies and outdoor space. So a lot of what I build is a product that's very competitive against sort of the, you know, your typical big box apartment buildings that are coming out. 
Yeah, this is cool because I, when you send the pictures of, of the projects you're working on, they're just really cool to watch and look at. Thank you. They're they're very. Uh, you're right. Boutique boutique is a good good way to put it. Yeah. Talk about the market that you're in. What what city are you in again? Richmond, Virginia. Yes. And uh, so talk about how your properties are different than a big apartment building. And um, are you buying and building like are you renovating existing building? I've done some renovations lately. Um, basically building ground up. And, okay. and so, you know, again, my, my bread and butter when I love to build and I build larger projects and I'm working on three or four larger right now, but I love building duplexes. They're cheaper to build. You can build them by residential code instead of commercial, which saves us in construction costs. It's, you know, it's like a single family home, only I have an apartment on the first floor and an apartment on the second floor, right? So it's a much more efficient use of that sort of architecture because I'm amortizing the cost of roof, walls, foundation, utilities over two units instead of one. So the economics are much better than a single family rental, but but they're very easy to build and 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 they rent and they stay rented because it, we, you know, let's say in a big box apartment building, a typical two bedroom apartment is somewhere around 900 square feet. My apartments in these duplex on average are 1150 to 1300 square feet. And what do they rent for? 18, 1900 in my market. And we can probably push it to 2000. Okay. Big walk-in closets, huge kitchens for two bedroom apartments. So, so it's a very unique competitive product. I, I build larger apartment buildings where our units are smaller, but there's still, those are usually mixed use product. And so we have commercial businesses downstairs or in the corner, really great commercial tenants. And so again, it's attractive to live in those buildings because you can walk downstairs, even if your apartment is only 600 square feet, you can walk one flight of stairs downstairs and, and there's a juice bar, there's there's a restaurant, there's a coffee shop, there's a yoga studio, which you don't always get in these larger apartment buildings where it's like 200 apartments and then, you know, a parking deck. So I love building that kind of product because we get to kind of develop walkability in neighborhoods, right? Yeah. I want to ask you a couple, three more questions. We will wrap it up in about five, 10 minutes or so. Sure. How are you finding deals right now? Mostly off market. I love buying from wholesalers. If anything comes my way from wholesalers lately, it hasn't been very much. A lot of, uh, most of the projects I'm developing right now as we speak, I'm building nine townhome development. I'm building a 12 lot development with a bunch of duplexes, single families. I'm building a 16 unit apartment building, four unit building, bunch of duplexes. Almost all of those deals came from my network. They were off market deals where people came to me and they said, I know somebody looking to sell this or in a couple of scenarios, it was, hey, I own this big property. It's got this excess land. Would you want to take a look at it? And we can carve that land off. So like the 16 unit project I'm building now came from, we carved a piece of land from a retirement community. Owners of that retirement community were people I knew. They bought it. There was just a big chunk of land sitting there that wasn't being used. I wrote them a check for 230 grand. They made some money. They're happy. I'm happy because I've got a piece of land in a great location, completely off market. Same thing. I'm building a nine town home for sale development now. That was carved off from another retirement home from a totally different owner. Somebody I know actually had breakfast with that person this morning. Same thing came to me, said, we've got, we've got the side lot that nobody's using anymore. There is piece of it is parking and our older residents don't need all this parking. Would you be interested in looking at it? And it's an incredible location. It's directly across the street from a 20,000 square foot mixed use development that I just finished. So yeah, I said, absolutely. Um, I'm doing development now where we took a medical office building and that one was actually on the market. I put it under contract for 12 months while we got it rezoned and I split it into 12 separate lots. As soon as we got approved to split into 12 separate lots, I closed on the medical office building. We tore it down. Now we're building eight for sale homes and then four duplexes in the middle. So eight rental units. So most of this coming from my network. Good. Okay. People that I know. I'm not doing marketing campaigns. I'm not doing mail mailers. Um, yeah. Which is not a bad way to do it. I just, I haven't had the need to. Like, uh, Let's talk market predictions. What are you predicting the market to do in the next six months, a year, two years? Man, I, you know, I, I try... <laughs> I try not to make predictions because almost every time any of us try to make predictions, they're, they're wrong. I, I think, I think rates are going to stabilize 
over the next six months, given given what's happening in the world now, I think I think rates will stabilize. I you know what we're seeing is our for sale market because because I have a home building division where we build for sale product and sell it. It remains resilient. Everything we're building and putting and listing in the market continues to sell. We're just being smart about how we price things. So I expect that to continue. We're, we're building a bunch of houses now, and as I mentioned, townhomes that are going to be for sale, and I expect that to remain strong. Um, I, I Again, I can't make predictions for other markets. Our rental market will remain, I think, strong, but the, the, the time of rental growth where you were seeing 10, 15, 20%, that's over. I think our rental rates here throughout this year are going to stay fairly flat. Um, that's about that's about as much prediction as I can make. You know, I'm you trying nationwide. Um, I know you don't like making predictions, and I appreciate that. I got to get something out of you. <laughs> you. Do you think nationwide rents are going to start dropping a little bit at least? I I think I think it's it's regional. There there are some markets that are going to be oversupplied. If you look at construction pipelines in certain, you know, the Sun Belt. Um, southeast, there, there, that's already happened, right? That's already there's already been decreases in market rental rates in certain markets from from sort of the COVID peaks, and 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 that will continue happening. Um, I I do think we have a lot of multifamily supply coming. It's in the construction pipeline. I um, things in two thousand and two. Is that right? Two thousand two, two thousand three. I was working for a construction company. Um, and I, they moved me down to Dallas to help with this project. We were finishing it up. It was a school or something like that. And um, I was just a project engineer. And uh, But I remember at the time, we moved down there and I needed to find a short-term place to rent. And this was before HomeAway or VRBO or Airbnb. Mm-hmm. And so we just found an apartment that was willing to do it month to month. And then we paid a company. We rented furniture from them. But I remember as I was looking for apartments, how much different it was in Dallas, Texas than it was in St. Louis or in San Francisco where I'd lived also at the time. It was very easy to Mm. find really nice apartments in Dallas, Texas. And I started Mm -hmm. digging into why. And um, the rents were way much, were way less. And I started reading about it that there was in in that period of time, late 90s, early 2000s, um, overbuilding too many apartments that were being built. And a lot of the big developers were really struggling. And it was a regional thing. Yeah. and I don't remember why, if it was because of the oil boom, bust, um, or what was going on in Dallas. But I was just, I was impressed on me at the time thinking, these are beautiful apartments and there's so much vacancies. They had so many incentives to get people in in terms of, you know, free TVs, free two months, free, free, free rent. rent. Yeah. It, and you say to yourself, well, these are really smart, deep pocketed people. How could they, how could they mispredict it? How could they? misjudge the market? Why didn't they see the writing on the wall and cancel projects and scale back the pipeline? That That's just not how it works. Like, yeah. so same mistakes happen throughout cycles. And they had that conversation this morning about the coming supply here, because I'm in permitting now on a 130 unit project and we're having a little bit of challenges getting the right financing for it. But the conversation we had this morning was maybe it's not a bad thing to pause that 130 units, given how much supply is coming. Because my performance depend on being able to hit tippy-top rents. Yeah. And if there is an oversupply, I may not be able to hit, to hit those rents. Let me ask you too, with interest rates going up, um, are you, because some of these people that sell into um, big multifamilies, they're they're counting on being able to refinance, stabilizing it, right? Yeah. And then refinance to... Um, get their money out and to, you know, mm-hmm. some more longer term financing. Is that becoming harder to do now or does it does not really matter? So from from talking to to mortgage brokers and people that kind of live in that world, takeout financing is still there, right? If you already have a stabilized asset, if it's something that's built, fully leased out, there, there is still takeout financing out there. We're seeing construction financing get more challenging. Okay. Um but but people are still able to refi and 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 get taken out if they already have a fully stabilized asset. Now that may change, um, but again, I, I personally don't think at this point rates are going to go up significantly. So I think I think the takeout financing will remain in place, um, but the way deals are being underwritten may change, right? So 
if everybody right now is underwriting deals with a 5% vacancy, maybe a year from now, you're seeing banks underwrite deals with a 10% vacancy or a 12% vacancy because there's so much supply coming. And that's, you know, when, when, when your lender is modeling a 10 or a 12% vacancy, that reduces how much money you're able to, to borrow. Yeah. Right. And, and if you owe this much for your construction loan and now you can only borrow this much, you might start running into problems. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you so many more questions here, but this has been really good, but you got to wrap it up. The, um, I mean, I got, I got, I got a few minutes, a few do. Yeah, I do also, but, um, rehab evaluator, it's a great little software that you have. Um, talk about that. Sure. So I, I, I built it originally for myself when I started doing, doing deals, but it's essentially, it's a deal analysis, deal marketing, fundraising, and project management platform. So it's not a CRM, right? Um, it helps you analyze deals, whether you're a wholesaler, fix and flipper, if you're doing bird deals, if you're a ground up developer, even if you're doing 300 unit projects, um, if you are wholesaling, it has seller data, contact info, we pull public records and you have instant access to info about that property nationwide, all the key characteristics, nationwide comparable sales, and then of course, full deal analysis. It, if you're a wholesaler, it creates marketing presentations for your wholesale deals, very easy, point and click. You can syndicate them on social media, get them out to your buyer's list, and marketing presentations that incorporate deal analysis into them. So you're you're making an intelligent presentation to your buyers. You're showing them actual numbers, right? Like I when I was when I got started in this business, I kept getting emails from wholesalers with like an address and a price and nothing else. And it drove me crazy. Like, yeah, do do a little bit of work. Give me some basic information that I can look at in an organized fashion where I can decide whether this is worth focusing on or not. So that's one of the things that the software allows you to do. One of the big things that we do for our clients is funding presentations. It creates full funding proposals for private lenders, for hard money lenders, for banks. Very professional, intelligent looking proposals that our clients have used for tens and tens of millions of dollars in funding at this point. And, and again, like, I use it in my business when I have a development deal to present to my bank for short-term lending or permanent lending or both. I use presentations from within the software. It creates a pro forma. It creates short-term funding presentation, long-term funding presentation, permanent funding. So that's been a really powerful feature. And then there's project management. You can create custom rehab budgets. We have templates that you can preload with costs and scopes of work pre-populated. There's a project scheduler, like a Gantt chart. Yeah. We have in-app accounting. So I, I built a project management suite that's like brain that simple, right? There's lots of great, amazing construction software out there, construction management software. Phenomenal, fantastic companies do huge business, but it's complicated. And for like mom and pop investors, or even for, for me, it, it, it has level of complexity that is completely unnecessary and the learning curve that is to me, if, you, if you're short on time, it's insurmountable. So I built a brain dead, simple project management suite. You can create a budget, build a schedule, build a scope of work. You can enter your bids, store your bids. There is an incredibly simple accounting system that in real time then will show you how your project is doing compared to your forecast, right? And you can store your invoices in it and then it creates really simple reporting around it. So for mom and pop fix and flippers developers, like that's about as much complexity as you need, but you can learn it in, in an hour. And so, so it does those things. We focus on, on sort of four things that we do well, and we, we don't do lead gen. We don't do CRM. We leave that to, to other people that are much better at it than, than, than us. If that makes sense. Did you say, um, property management or project management? Project management. Okay. Yeah. Not property management. Okay. Is that the right link there? rehabvaluator.com. That's it. Yeah. Awesome. Guys, you should go check it out. Uh, Daniel has been pouring his heart and soul into that software for years. I when sure have. Um, 2011, I wow. feel like. Yeah, it's been around for a long, it's, it started out as an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. Because that that's, I built it myself. Um, that's my background in finance is building spreadsheets and, and financial models. But then we, Finally, in 2015, built like a real web-based application out of it that's dynamic. It's mobile, mobile friendly. Yeah. You can use it on, on any device, stores all your data. And we have 
thousands and thousands of very happy paying clients right now, which is very nice because it started off as kind of an experiment. Yeah. So go check it out right now, everybody. I know you'll like it. If anything that Daniel has been saying here has been helpful for you, then check it out. Rehabvaluator.com. Cool. There's a free version of it, by the way. And that's, that's, that's also one of the things that we've always done that was very unique. There's a completely free ver- version that you can sign up for as well that lets you do analysis. And we have phenomenal support even for people to use the free version. Again, it's just like property management. Like these people sit in my office. They're full-time people whose only job it is to help our clients. And they're, yeah, they sit, they sit in my office. They're not in, in, in Philippines or Malaysia or somewhere. Um, we have really great support. All right, cool. And uh, Daniel, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, uh, maybe invest with you on one of your projects, or maybe they have a deal in the Virginia area where you are, they can send you something. How can they reach you? Uh, easiest ways to email me. You can find me on social media. I'm easy to find on, on Facebook and on, on Instagram, but you can email me at Daniel, D-A-N-I-I-L at rehabvaluator.com. And I usually re- reply to, 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 to every email I get, unless, you know, it's silly. In which case I don't. I think I'm going to get it right here. Yeah. I'll show it on the screen. D-A-N-I-I-L. That's me. As rehabvaluator.com. Yeah. And if you've got deals in the Richmond area, send them to me. I'm I'm not looking for investors right now, but I am I am looking for deals. Um, but I'm also happy if you have questions, if I can help you with anything, reach out to me. Awesome. Daniel, thank you so much for the time. Guys, I'm yeah. going to be, if you're on my email list, I am going to be um, promoting Daniel's software. It's really, really fantastic. And it's very affordable. It's surprising when I look at it. It's like, you should be charging way more than this. No, yeah, and I, I know we've we've uh, we've underpriced it, but I, I'm a firm believer in open yeah. delivering. Yeah, so. good. Uh, thank you, Dan's got some nice words here. Hey, Joe and Daniel, good information here. Appreciate cool. the kind words. Um, a lot of other comments here. I don't have time to go through them. LinkedIn is in the house. What's up, Jessica? Glad you're here. Um, Nazmul, doing great. Thank you. All right, guys, listen, if you're watching this on YouTube or Facebook, give me a thumbs up and like it, please. I'd really appreciate it. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. And if you're listening to the audio podcast, thank you so much for listening to the show. Leave us a review in iTunes or Spotify. Subscribe and uh, appreciate it very much. Thank you, Daniel. My pleasure, Joe. Thanks for having me. All right, have a good one. We'll see you guys, everybody. (laughs) 